Well, kia ora tato, morena. Morning, everyone. Hey, please take your seats. Uh, fantastic to be here with you. Uh, thank you for the warm welcome. And um, I know that that's a sincere welcome too, so I really appreciate that. There's only one church in Wellington. There's only one church in New Zealand. It's made up of everyone who loves Jesus. And um, the question is, how do we work most effectively as one team? Now, today I'm going to bring you quite an eclectic message. And um, so uh, and if, I don't know if the PowerPoint can show on the back screen, but if not, I'll just stand to the side. Um, that's fine um, either way. Um, imagine today that I'm about to deliver the content of a book. It's got about 12 chapters to it. Every chapter is a message by itself. Now, if you get all of those 12 chapters at once, that might begin to feel like you're going to be overloaded. So what I'm telling you now is choose right now to not feel overloaded because it's coming. Okay. And uh, you're going to be able to remember at least 5% of what I tell you in the next half hour or so, right? At least 5%. Well done. But at the end of it, you will know that these chapters exist. And uh, we're going to look at the importance of history uh, to the wider mission here in New Zealand. Um, just to keep it real, uh, we're in a house and it's a house of hope. And uh, we all have things happening in our lives. One of the things that happened since I was last with you is that my father passed away. And, uh, and obviously for everybody, that's, um, that's a, a rather sad time. I come from a, a family that's had plenty of brokenness in it. Um, there's deep pain. Uh, there has been deep division. Um, there is genuine, continuing, full-on brokenness in people's lives. The wonderful thing is my mum came to faith, and that's how I came to faith. And then a number of years later, my dad came to faith. And then my dad, for the last couple of decades, just more and more, his character was refined from, from character that had caused a lot of pain to, to character that more and more resembled Christ. He didn't make it to be quite like Jesus, but now he is. Yeah? You know what I'm saying? And, um, and in the last decade of his life, my dad even decided to become a Salvation Army person. He donned one of those uniforms, and uh, he went and did old folks' home services. Uh, to, to encourage people in faith and just to sit there and to talk with them. So I had the great privilege of being with my dad in the last days of his life just before this trip. And um, you're just sort of there and he's, he's slowly fading across the days. And it's like, what do you do? I'm going to start reading Psalms to him. You know, that's, that's old people Bible, right? Young people Bible is action. Old people Bible is Psalms. Uh, actually, one of our sons while traveling, we said, let's go to this place. It's got amazing scenery. And Lucas called from the back of the car. We don't want scenery. That's old people's fun. I <laughs> thought that was quite insightful. Um, and, and a couple of days before he passed away, you know, I just read a particular psalm and um, just praying, and, and he was mumbling, couldn't understand him. When could I ever understand him, you know? And um, joking. And, uh, and his hands from the bed just raised up, and he just mumbled off for three or four minutes. You could tell his heart was just filled with joy. He had no fear of death. He had every hope in front of him. You know, for all the brokenness of our lives, we're in a house of hope, people. And um, be encouraged. Know that you're in a home right now. Um, God loves you in all of our diversity and in all of our differences. So great place to be. Hope Project um, it has been a fantastic uh, sort of journey, and um, uh, I just did that. I think I wrecked your slides. If you can, um, the back screen stopped. I think it was me. Pressed the wrong button. But Hope Project this last year for us was kind of here comes another one just like the other one. It was the seventh time. Uh, TV ads were about 2.2 million New Zealanders, an average of 5.7 times, and the booklet, booklets went to about 1.37 million homes. Uh, volunteer delivery was about 1.15 million homes. One of the encouraging things about that is that mobilizing the delivery is easier than you'd think, because people like yourselves don't help deliver these booklets because you want to help Dave and Tauranga. 
You deliver the booklets because you love your community, right? It's because you love your family. You love your neighbors. And uh, you know what? Without ever meeting, I put to you that we're in unity. Unity isn't about standing in the same room. That's uniformity. Like all the school students in their uniforms. Uniformity doesn't mean they like each other or get on. Unity. We follow the same God. We read the same Bible. We serve on the same mission. God's church is already more united than we think it is. If we begin to measure that by heart and action rather than just by the ability to gather in one room. So thanks for your participation. Online, one encouraging thing to tell you, I told you there'll be lots of chapters to this book, um, is that our overall engagement online went down about 18% to um, say about 600,000 on one of the social media platforms as an example. And COVID-19's lockdown would explain that. Engagement went up 190%. And one particular piece of engagement went up 600% year on year. And that was link clicks. So I'm a skeptic. I'm on social media. I don't want you to know, but I see stuff happening in the world around me, and I'm actually interested. I actually want to know more about God and religion and, and all that stuff. There's got to be something there. If I like it or hate it or comment or share, you know I've been there. If I click, you don't. And a 600% year-on-year increase in link clicks. So uh, just to point it out to encourage you, as the world gets darker, the light shines brighter. Some of the best days, no matter what happens in our history coming up, uh, some of the best days for the Church of New Zealand, I, I believe, can be ahead. Even in the midst of darkness, the light can shine. Okay, let's look at history. New Zealand has one of the most remarkable mission history stories ever. It is hailed in mission history as one of the most successful missions, despite all the negativity that you hear today. It's really quite incredible. Uh, it was stuffed up by colonization. But if you can look before the colonization to hear it, it's incredible. Missionaries came who wanted to live inside the Māori world, speaking to their Māori. But first of all, they didn't actually just come. They refused to come unless invited. The Reverend Samuel Marsden in Australia built relationship with many Māori and was learning te reo while teaching them English. Uh, that included Chief Te Pahi, who was later unjustly killed. But he invited Marsden to come. It then included Ruatara, whose life he saved. And um, then that was eventually fulfilled uh, when in 1814, uh, three chiefs, Ruatara, Korokoro and Hongihika, went to Australia to get Marsden and bring him back. At this point in time, there was a wider story. It's called uh, Te Wakamininga, which is the Confederation of Chiefs. They'd been meeting for about 25 years by the time of Te Tiriti or Waitangi, and uh, they'd been looking at how they would manage Pākehā coming in, because they were in charge of New Zealand, but they wanted the trade, but the whalers, sealers, and traders were immoral, violent, they'd kidnap people, they'd rape women, they were really bad. Uh, Kororareka, or Russell, was called the hellhole of the, the, the South Pacific. Right, So it was a pretty bad scene. And uh, you need balance sometimes. And they discovered there was a second type of Pākehā, one who called on the name of Jesus, who was peace-loving, who even said, love your enemies. Radical idea to them. They decided to get that type of Pākehā here because they were different. Māori didn't embrace the gospel quickly. They weren't dumb. They weren't just going to suck up to anything that came along. They were thinking. And so they watched. What was Marsden like? You see, Marsden had this concept, which in today's language would be community ministry before sharing gospel. In Old English, you'd say civilized before Christianized. The word civilized has changed meanings. It's easy to misunderstand. In practice, look at what he did. He failed to share the gospel and was highly criticized for it. 
You'd say that uh, we're here on the New Zealand mission to save the heathen, top line of the mission report, because that's what you're supposed to say. But in actual fact, he bought a ship to enable the New Zealand mission. He gifted um, flocks of sheep and taught Māori how to look after them. Didn't charge them for it to build their economy. He gifted cows and taught them how to look after and breed cows to build their economy. He gifted crops of wheat and maize and taught them how to plant them and farm them to build their trading abilities. He uh, gifted metal tools and then taught them carpentry because Māori had very limited tools so couldn't use most of the wood. He then taught them blacksmithing because you can't uh, have metal tools unless you know how to make them or to repair them. And this list goes on and on and on. The early missionaries were absolutely incredible. And after a while, Māori said, they're different to the rest. What they carry is different. With Henry Williams coming uh, around 1824-26, somewhere there, he'd been in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, he'd seen plenty of bloodshed. He was over it. He gave his life to be a missionary. It's believed he might have been a pacifist. He's the man who'd walk across battlefields with Māori killing each other, and he'd never duck for cover. The muskets are being fired. Put your weapons down. These are your brothers. The Bible tells you to love your enemies. This isn't the way. And uh, so he was fearless and became highly regarded. And he worked out that if we don't share the gospel, we're actually failing. The gospel of peace between uh, humanity and God is also a gospel of peace between one man and another and one woman and another. And with the preaching of the gospel, Christian Rangi is the first recognized Christian, but then there were many of them. And then with the, the anti-slavery movement of England was the missionary movement of New Zealand. They are the same people, radical, anti-colonialistic, anti-slavery, all of that kind of stuff. So they, they preached against the evils of slavery. So Ngapuhi released its slaves. Many of the slaves had become Christians. So Piripi Tomatarakuta took the gospel to the East Cape, around the Gisborne area. Minarapa Rangihotuake took the gospel down through Taranaki and then to the Tiatiawa people who were down in Waikanae. And you end up with your first church down there. Um, the Tororia story is famed. It's really the story of Tororia's dad, Ngakuku, whose Bible got stolen and daughter got murdered, who forgave. And then through that reconciliation, the gospel is embraced by Uita and others. And then that gospel finds itself down with Katu and Tafifi, the son of Taropraha, the warring chief, and his nephew. And they take the gospel to the South Island. I read a book recently about a revival, literally a Holy Spirit revival in the Nelson region. Um, absolutely incredible piece of history that lasted for two years. Until it said that certainly 50%, probably certainly two-thirds, some say as high as 80% of all Māori had embraced the Christian faith. Uh, the intertribal war, the cannibalism, the human sacrifice, all of these things ended. It was an incredible mission. The Treaty of Waitangi is the result of that confederation of chiefs coming together with these radical missionaries who were anti-colonialistic, trying to put something in place to stop the colonization that was coming because the British government had approved limited colonization and Wakefield and the New Zealand Company were coming here with settlers now to get large areas of land and to settle the country. So how do you stop this disaster? How do you mitigate it? Well, you've got radical Christians in Parliament in the um, colonial office in England, in particular James Stevens, Lord Normanby, and Lord Glenelg. And Normanby um, commissions this unbending um, a Navy man called Hobson, who would never compromise. That's why he's chosen to stop the disaster of colonization. But if you can't, find a way to mitigate it, to soften the blow, to try and protect Māori within this picture. And so it was this trusting relationship coming together on the two sides that enabled Te Tiriti or Waitangi. It was completely stuffed up. No one denies that. And the, the efforts to put it right are a completely righteous effort. 
even though it gets very confused by various government um, agendas that are being put into the mix of it at the moment, which really is confusing it. We have an amazing history. But how significant is that story? You see, if history is an imposition of colonization, it has no right to be in this nation, and we could get rid of it. But if history was actually invited and embraced by Māori themselves, then it has every right to be here. The stories of history shape the future. Make no mistake about it. And our failure to know and tell those stories is a very costly failure. Here are some of our social media for you. And I am going to have to stand uh, to the side slightly. Um, sorry, I don't know if that, does that affect camera or anything? We're okay? Okay. Um, our social media uh, has a whole mix of people, about 600,000 engagements um, sitting in there at Easter, about 400,000 at Christmas. Um, just so that you know, I want to encourage you today, here's what the atheists and the, uh, the non-Christians think of you. Um, you are claiming pagan holidays like Christmas for yourself. Um, all of your relig all religions borrow from pagan myths. God doesn't exist. It's just a story that can't be proved. The Bible stories are fairy tales. The Bible isn't true. You religious people are imposing your beliefs and your festivals on people. Uh, one non-believer commented under that, if you think that's the case, why don't you stop taking a public holiday at Christmas and go back to work? I liked that. Uh, Christianity controls people with fear and lies. Churches are about corrupt power and money. Uh, Christians are deluded sheep who don't have any reason or logic, who believe fables. You've killed millions and you've taken lands. There you go. Be encouraged today. Be encouraged. Woo! Okay, here's what Christians say. Christmas is pagan, and Christians shouldn't celebrate it. Santa Claus is like Satan. Same letters. Hope Project is terrible with all of its strap lines. My goodness, Aroha, the reason for the season, with a picture of baby Jesus. It's not Aroha that's the reason for the season, it's Jesus. It's a communication tool, though, isn't it? Right, you're talking to a non-church audience. How are you going to slap that in their face? Our TV ad, to point it out, never says Jesus. All the imagery is Jesus. It's a poem. And it begs the question, who is this talking about? And the non-believer sitting in their lounge says, ah, Jesus. Jesus is in it, but it's put together with wisdom to make them say it, not you, because you're appealing to an audience that could be hostile. So kind of missing the point, right? Um, here's some Easter stuff. Common objections. Christianity is an irrelevance. The Bible supports slavery. Slavery's wrong, and that makes me as an atheist superior to you as a Christian. Catch that as an argument. By the way, Christianity is the only thing that's ever challenged and stopped slavery, uh, and it's because of the Bible. Right? Easter has nothing to do with Jesus, which is strange, given that our government made Easter and Christmas public holidays to remember the birth, death, and resurrection of him. Religions are the cause of most of the world's wars, which isn't actually true. Um, and by the way, atheism killed more people last century than all religions combined the last 2,000 years. And Christianity brings discrimination, we'd be better off without it. Uh, the whole tolerance movement, the discrimination and the equality movement is entirely from the church, uh, in case you're not aware. How are we going to answer these questions? This is what people are thinking. The hostility toward us is growing because public media tell the bad stories and don't tell the good stories. And what I worked out this year, after a few years of doing this, is that the replies we put in, which are very effective in, in these conversations when it's got gentleness and, and story to it, two-thirds of those objections can only be answered with a story from history. I'll say it again. You can have all the knowledge of the Bible you like, quote a thousand verses and all that kind of stuff, and have the faith that can move mountains. If you don't have story, you can't answer those questions. History is more important than we think. 
Psalm 78. My people hear my teachings. Listen to the words of my mouth. I'll go fast. I'm skimming through chapters. You see chapter 3 already. I will open my mouth with parables and utter things from of old, things we have heard, things our ancestors told us. Okay, what things did our ancestors tell us? We won't hide these things from their descendants. We will tell the next generation what? The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. It's the stories. Now, this chapter goes on to list around about 20-odd things, various things, that God had done in the nation of Israel related to going through the Red Sea. So does that mean that you're supposed to be going out on the streets and telling people about Moses going through the Red Sea? No. How irrelevant is that? That's got nothing to do with us in New Zealand. Man, that's probably 5,000 years ago. Oh, yeah, actually it is. What if the principle of this is that we're supposed to tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done, instead of telling them the things that they were telling the next generation 5,000 years ago? like the arrival and spread of Christianity, like why we have freedom of speech and religion, like how we became one of the longest-standing democratic governments in human history, in case you don't know that, Um, like how we got our concepts of charity when one uh, historian could not find a single example of a charitable organization existing anywhere on planet Earth prior to the time of Christ. Catch that. The concept of charity is fully Christian. Like why we educate poor people, why we educate... Different people of different races. The world hasn't been like that. Like, uh, you know, why we don't have slaves, have I said that? Why we consider women to be equal? For all the protests that women have for inequality, women in this nation are at the leading front line of equality that has ever been anywhere, ever in all of human history. This is the best it has ever, ever, ever been. We live in the most amazing nation. How did this come about? We're one of the most free, prosperous, equality-based places in the world today and in all of human history. This is a story to tell that's going to be left out of the history curriculum, by the way, for students. It's an incredible story. Well, it's all because of Christ, if you look at it. And those stories, how that came about, that's the story that's relevant to our people today. And Deuteronomy, these are the commands, decrees, laws the Lord directed me to teach you to observe. Uh, when you cross the Jordan. So you, your children, and their children may fear the Lord. Am I supposed to recite the Lord's instructions to my children? Well, yes. Okay, so I just recited them. What am I supposed to say next? Hear, O um, Israel, be careful to obey that it goes with you. The Lord is one Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Next verses. These commandments that I give you today, are to be on your heart and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In today's English, this is saying that the things of the Lord are supposed to be talked about to our children when you are sitting at home at the dinner table, when you are driving in the car to drop them off to sports practice when you're lying down and giving them a bedtime story, but also when you get up and you're sitting at the breakfast table, not just saying grace, but maybe reciting what? You could tie them on, on your, your, your hands and bind them on your foreheads, but that's weird. But you could put posters up instead that have scriptures or, or things in your house that remind you of stories as emblems. Um, door frames these days are used to height the measure, of, uh, measure the height of children, right? Not to write scriptures on. That would be weird in my book, but you're welcome to do that. Uh, Posters could be a more culturally apt sort of idea. But the point is, 
maybe the instructions of Scripture aren't just that we're supposed to tell the stories of Scripture. Could it be that the instructions here are that we're supposed to tell the stories of what the Lord has done, which embodies the commands and the instructions? For example, I worked out after a few years of reading Bible stories uh, to our kids and then telling them all the bizarro ones from throughout the Bible that don't make the children's story books as well. You can cover a lot of Bible stories in 365 days. And if you do that a few years in a row, I suddenly worked out, wait a minute, I'm missing something. They have to know this is real. And I can tell them it's real. And they can say, yes, it's real because they believe me. But to make it really real, I need to tell them about why I became a Christian. How did my wife and I get married? What's one of the best arguments my wife and I have ever have? How do we resolve that and why? What are the principles? What are the values of this? What about anger, good or bad? When's one of the times I've been the angriest and done something really dumb? How did I learn to control anger as a teenager? You know what I mean? How do we ever sense the call of God to do things? What about the faith experiences, stepping out in faith? What have we seen the Lord do? When we prayed for sick people, what happened? How did we deal with the many times we prayed for sick people and they never got healed? You know what I'm saying? See, you see, the story embodies culture. And what if your church is supposed to also tell the story of your church movement that you're connected to? Because that'll be a story of God at work. What about the story of how you got this building, this piece of land you're standing on? Where did this come from? Because there'll be a faith story and miraculous provision and God's leading in that story. Because then whenever we come into it, we realize this really is the house of the Lord, provided by God for a given purpose in this community. What about the stories of our culture, of our bicultural history, of our values history? In other words, where our values came from. Uh, and the stories, as I've said already, of our own faith journeys and our own lives. Because children love hearing stories. Youth love hearing stories. Old, old people love hearing stories. And old, old, old people like telling stories really, really long. Yeah. Joshua 4, when all the people had crossed the Jordan... The Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men, one from each tribe. Tell them, take 12 stones from the place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan and carry them out and pile them up at the place where you will camp tonight. So Joshua called together 12 men and they did that. We will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them they remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial amongst the people of Israel forever. Memorials. So does this mean that you need to go on a pilgrimage to Israel to look at this memorial to tell your children? Is this an instruction for you to tell your children what that memorial means? Because if it is, that means the Bible requires you to start saving to visit Israel and to go for a walk to actually go and see where that is to tell your kids. You've got to take them there. That's really expensive. What a meanie God. Our finances can't afford that, right? I don't think that's the point. The lesson is the principle, and the principle is you build memorials to things that have value. This is why our nation celebrates Christmas and Easter, because the birth, death, and resurrection has value. It's why we celebrate Waitangi Day, because it's the constitutional beginning point of our nation, and we're going to add Masariki to it. It's why we celebrate Anzac, because our men and our women went out and died and did medical work on foreign places with the idea of protecting our freedoms, even though one of those wars was pretty dumb. That's human nature. They still went there to fight for us. The other war, I'd say, was a just war. You see, in our houses, we've got memorials. One of them in our bedroom is a photo of my wife and I on the day of our wedding. 
It's not there to remind us of how good we looked then and how bad we look now, right? What's the point of that? It's a memorial to say that was important. And we're going to honor the commitment we made on that day. That's why we do that. It's the principle of a memorial to remind us of something. Some of us even collect things that remind us of things. You know, like your nana with all the knickknacks that sit along the shelf. But if you actually bother to ask, you'll discover that every one of those things has a purpose, a reason, and a story. They are memorials. And some of those things are important and some of those things aren't. Winston Churchill, um, a great politician of England, World War II. One of, the great, one of the signs of a great society is the diligence with which it passes culture from one generation to the next. And what I'm telling you is that culture is embodied in story. That's how it gets passed on. I can tell you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as an instruction. I don't think it passes on the culture. I have to then explain what that means, not with a big explanation, but with a story. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Is he faithful? Can you actually trust him? It's the story that passes it on. One of the signs of a great society is the diligence with which it passes culture from one generation to the next. This culture is the embodiment of everything that the people of that society hold dear. When one generation no longer esteems its own heritage and fails to pass the torch to its children, it is saying in essence that the very foundation, principles, and experiences that make the society what it is are no longer valid. Now, I put to you that this is what our nation has done. For at least 60 years, we have not had history education in schools. We have denied the public a knowledge of their history. Because if you were to understand our history, you would know who we were as a nation, which means that you couldn't be bent into whatever someone else wants you to make. I believe we're being rebranded. We're being turned into something that we're actually fundamentally not. And we all comply and go along with it because we don't even know our own story. And that story is the embodiment of who we are as a people. And it's the embodiment of God's work, which is a really significant part of who we are as New Zealanders. Really significant. Even the most atheistic atheists in this nation live by Christian values every day. And the dots aren't joined because the story isn't told. And even our new history education in schools will obscure this message from our children. So what is required? What is required when this happens and when the society has lost its way is for leaders to arise who have not forgotten the discarded legacy and who love it with all of their hearts. My friends, that's what we're called to be. We have to dig out again the story we've forgotten. We have to dig out again the discarded legacy, the story of all the things that God has done in this nation and the things that God has done in our lives, and we've got to tell the story. Because people's presupposition, the thing they think about Christianity, is the starting point of the God conversation. We can put our booklets and our media out there, but what comes back at us, I'm trying to hold a booklet to you know, be illustrative, it's just good preaching, so you've got to get you know, multimedia, there you go. You've got to, you know, when people get these things, their reaction comes from their position, where they're up to in their journey. And they're being told that Christianity is the problem with the world. Failing to realize the freedom of speech with which they say that comes from us. Say thank you. You know, when you criticize us, say thank you, because you couldn't say that but for us. Um, we need to change the starting point, because that starting point's getting further and further away. In which case, the study of history and the telling of these stories is fundamental to our mission. It's not an extra. 
You might think it's just sharing the gospel, but why would I want to follow a facetious God who gives all the world different religions and causes wars? Your God's crazy. Why would I follow him or her or it? You just presume him. You're sexist, right? You probably think he's white. You're racist, you know, and you were just trying to share hope, <laughs> you know? Story. I had a lady, uh, um, it, was a, it was a funny one for me, down um, in another part of the country. And she was quite staunch. She was thoroughly beautiful, moldy lady. She came up to me with her arms folded. She said, when you started speaking, I had, I had my arms folded. I was thinking, who's this? But then as you spoke, I realized you understand a bit about our people. And then I worked out you were with Hope Project. I got one of those Hope Project booklets. And when I opened it, I saw our people. So I read it. And then I read it again, and I put it down. And then I read it again, and I put it down. And then I read it again, and I gave my life to Jesus and became a Christian. And, and, and I don't read your booklets anymore. I read the Bible. She was awesome. And uh, she then took a collection of the booklets to give to her relatives, while also explaining that it was difficult to give it to them. You know, and you had to wait for the right time sometimes to give it to a, a close relative. So she was engaging with the genuine challenges that we have uh, in, in our mission and in our outreach. Story is important. Those who tell the history write the future. Those who tell the history write the future because the history tells you who you are. But this is the, the, the challenging one. Those who control the present control the past. Those who are in government and in education get to decide what story you get to hear. And not all story is equal. Some story is really important. My grandmother in New Zealand ate breakfast in 1934. There'll be a whole story around it if we really want to dig it out. Maybe someone remembers this and could write a book about what my grandmother had for breakfast. It is part of New Zealand's history. Is anyone really interested in reading a whole book about that? I hope not. It's not really very important, is it? So not all history is important. Not all history is equal. So what history is important? How do we decide that? How about the history that gives us our values, that makes us what we are? How about the history that is good? We can be selective. You've got to tell the bad history to be honest. I included the bad history in my family, to be honest with you, right? We need to talk about the colonization of this nation, to be honest. But the good history is what builds hope. We don't tell our children all of the bad stories of all the bad things our relatives and ancestors did so they think, man, I hate being part of this family. This is an evil family, right? We can selectively be honest about some of the bad, but talk about the choices made people made to be better and to be good and to improve. And that story builds hope. That's a wise way of telling history. You don't ever deny the negative, but you focus on the positive because you believe in God and you believe in good values and that that's really what your culture is about. Let's jump on to some examples. We're getting to the, the, the second half of the book now, coming towards a landing, but we're not there yet. What does secular mean? We're a secular nation. Your Hope Project stuff shouldn't be bringing Christian stuff into the public square. There's lots of religions here. Well, what does secular actually mean? Did you know it was used a thousand or so years ago in reference to Benedictine monks who studied the Bible devotedly, dressed funny, and went around helping the poor? They were secularists because it meant to be different and separate to the structured church, not to not be Christian. Our nation's first parliament was in South Taranaki. They built a 400-seater building. Pākehā snubbed it. A few years later, our second parliament was established, just to note it, with four token seats amongst the 60 to Māori. That was wrong. 
With those wrongs noted, because we don't hide from the negative, let's look at what them formed. Uh, they had a first debate of their first sitting of that parliament, and the first debate was about who would open in Christian prayer. Why was that the debate? Here's the answer. Because they wanted us to be a secular nation. So we're going to open in Christian prayer? How does that work? Because the word secular at that point in time meant to be of no particular Christian denomination. You see, we were never created as a non-religious secular nation. We are a Christian secular nation. We're very specifically going to be Christian. No question, because if we're not Christian, then what are we? Maybe we're atheistic, in which case it's survival of the fittest, which means power is the most important thing. So we've all got to take control of each other. That doesn't sound good. I'd rather have love as an undergirding value system. So we want to be Christian. We're not going to be Muslim values or Hindu or Buddhist or Taoist. We want Christian values. And even the atheists in that parliament had no second thoughts or questions about the fact that we'd be a Christian nation in terms of our values, not in terms of everyone being a Christian. Instead, we would simply be Christian. And so how do we resolve this problem that we don't want to be connected to one denomination? Because in England, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, was married to the state. That's what we didn't want, a separation of powers so denominational hierarchy and government didn't get intertwined because it actually corrupted true religion. So a man was sent down the street to find the first Christian minister he could who was brought back to open in prayer, and that's how they resolved the problem. That first Christian minister happened to be an Anglican, and that's why we're an Anglican nation. Yes, okay. Yeah, no. So somewhere along the way, the very meaning of the word secular got changed. You see, let me give you who we are as a nation. I put to you that we are a Christian secular, Christian multi-religious, bicultural, multicultural society. Okay? It's specific. We are a Christian secular, Christian multi-religious, bicultural, multicultural society. Okay, the first one. We're a Christian secular. We want a separation of church hierarchies from government, but we're definitely going to be Christian value system as compared to any other value system. Right? Second one, we are a Christian multi-religious society. Because we're built on Christian principles, you've got the freedom of the will, because God made you, and you don't, it doesn't get dictated. If we respect the freedom of the will, people of all religions are going to exist in our nation. People will choose to be of those religions, and because we treat people equally, we will let people of those religions into our nation. So a Christian nation will always become a multi-religious nation as well. If you remove the Christian bit, you will eventually remove and squash the multi-religious bit because other religions don't beget multi-religious environments like Christianity does, in case you haven't noticed. Um, and finally, we are a bicultural, multicultural society. The first one in every case is our constitutional kind of point. We are bicultural constitutionally, right? Iwi, toiwi, Māori and non-Māori. But the non-Māori part doesn't just include the white fellas, it includes the people of all kinds of colours and races. That's multicultural, right? But constitutionally, there are two people, the iwi and the tauiwi, tangata whenua, tangata tiriti. That's actually who we are. It's a narrative that should be in our schools. But there you go. Um, and the fact that we're secular is evidenced by, um, uh, multi-religious and Christian, is evidenced by various and growing numbers of things. Um, the values of our society expressly come from Christianity. I've been surprised how much this is true as I've undertaken to study it the last five years reading various books. 
our, um, our value of human life, ending uh, equality of races, ending of slavery, democratic forms of government, ideas of human rights, freedoms of information, conscience and speech, equality of genders, concepts of charity, education for all, health care for all, all of these things have come from the Christian faith. Democracy is the one that some people might argue with the quickest there, um, thinking back to the Greek and Romans, who did have a democracy of sorts at time in the hierarchy, but that was a democracy of the very rich, let's just say like the number of people in parliament, everybody else had no vote and no say, and half to two-thirds of all people were slaves as well. So, and if you trace the history, that's not actually where our democracy came from. Our concepts of democracy came from the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, in the tribes and in the cities, they were told to appoint trustworthy men as their leaders. That was the beginning of democratic forms of government. Hugely, hugely influential. Tom Holland, secular historian, an atheist in, in Europe, um, uh, wrote a book called Dominion. We quoted him in the most recent Hope Project booklet for a reason, because he studied his cultural history as a European. You see, are these European values? Because this is the narrative, you see, and this is why we're scared of talking about them. I put to you that that's not European values. That's Jesus' values. The center of Christianity was the Middle East. Then the center of Christianity was North Africa. Then the center of Christianity was Europe. And the center of Christianity is now moving to Africa, um, Asia, and Latin America. That's where it's shifting to. In studying European history, Tom Holland across the decades suddenly realized he had almost nothing in common with his ancestors. Looking at the Greeks and the Romans. How are we and they the same other than the color of our skin and the land we stand on? Because I'm repulsed by them. I'm repulsed by their lack of charity, their lack of care, their lack of concern, their violence, their, their gross immorality. And I'm not going to explain what I mean by that, but just the terrible, terrible, terrible things that were done that were acceptable and even esteemed as being good. And he had to work out, well, who am I as a European today and as an atheist? Well, I'm nothing like the ancient Greeks and Romans, really. So who am I like? I'm like Jesus. And so, as an atheist, he has concluded, I am Christian. Right? He's not saying, I am a Christian. He's saying, I am Christian. And he's far from the only one. Richard Dawkins, one of the most vocal opponents to Christianity in the Western society with his books and stuff, you know, um, what has he said about Christianity of late? How about this as a radical statement? Christianity might yet be the solution for England. Interesting. I lament the demise of Christianity in much as it may have been a bulwark or a restraining wall against something worse. When asked in 2017 what he thought of Bible in schools, everyone expects him to speak against it. He says, oh, it's actually really important. Without an understanding of those stories, children would not be able to understand so much of our literature. And just to ask you the question, what's the importance of reading your culture's literature? The stories are the embodiment of your culture and your values. He's recognizing it because there's changes, because the secular world has said all the religions are the same, and they've followed it through and opened doors and done everything, and they've now discovered that all religions aren't the same because we actually have radically different values. Another evidence of this whole idea is the United Nations. You see, where did the secular neutral values of the United Nations come from? Well, they're not neutral or secular at all. They come from Christianity. They were penned by Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of the late President Roosevelt of America, who was a devoted Christian and delighted to be able to chair the committee. 
not everyone on the committee was Christian. People were from other religions. But they listed a list of values that they thought would be good for the globe, which are based on the premise that human life is valuable because we're created in the image of God. If not for that, you're nothing other than an accident of chance. You have no value, intrinsic value, other than what you defend for yourself with a sword. And then they just removed all the word God and all the Christian stuff from within it. Of course, they wrote it without the word God in the first place, but you get my point. It's a Christian document. And so the United Nations has done remarkable good amongst the attempts to try and control the whole world that are also concurrently there. Poverty globally decreased more in the last 20 years than any time in human history. It's a remarkable success story. Why? Because they took capitalism, which is a freedom, your freedom to earn money, to save, to invest it, and to make a profit. That's not a bad thing. That's what capitalism, in case you don't know, because the, 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 the left these days is saying that capitalism is wrong because it's, all, it's about greed and materialism. No, greed is greed. Materialism is materialism. Capitalism is actually a basic economic freedom, right? Just so you understand what the words mean. They'll mesh them together because it suits their purpose. But um, it's because the United Nations took capitalism and open free market economies to the world and released people with principles of integrity and honesty to invest and to have business and to put boundaries around it, you know, um, like Christian values produce, producing a boom. Because whenever capitalism comes into a nation, you know the rich get richer and you could protest that, but you know who else gets richer? The poor do. Capitalism makes everybody richer. Let's go the opposite direction to socialism, in which case we're going to pull down the rich because they are the perpetrators of this great evil, until we've spent all of their money, quoting Plato now, and then suddenly we discover that all their money is gone, and what are we going to do next? Because we've got no more money to spend. When you put socialism in place, guess what? Everybody, the rich get richer still. That never stops. There's always going to be greed and materialism. Human nature's corrupt, but the poor get poorer. Socialism, every time, at the end of the day, briefly while you spend the rich's money, but then you've spent it. And they're going to stop making new businesses that will employ people and create money, they're going to stop because the society's been undermined and they're called bad people. Why try if you're going to be undermined? Every time socialism makes the poor poorer, capitalism makes the poor richer. It's worth noticing. Christian values. And that's gone through the United Nations to the world. And the Muslims aren't dumb. They understand this, which is why the OIC met in Cairo in 2002 and created what's known of as the Cairo Declaration. That's their own declaration of human rights. It's got a different value system to the one the United Nations has for a reason, because they know that the United Nations Declaration comes from a Christian worldview. So their one uh, supports Sharia law and other things from their own worldview. Let's land this. History is important. And I believe the principles of Scripture that we may have been missing for a while is we're supposed to know these stories and be telling them because they're the embodiment of culture. Hope Project booklets have been deliberately telling the stories of our nation's history behind our biculturalism and where our values came from, which is through Europe, but is actually specifically from Jesus. Outside the back doors, if you go out the right-hand set of doors, the seven existing booklets are all there. I would like to ask that each person or each family at least take one copy of each booklet. It is the simplest, best resource on this topic that you will find in New Zealand. That's a, that's, I think that's a factual statement because I've looked at all the books on the topic. And uh, the first three 
are more generic. They cover bicultural stuff principally. The next four booklets cover seven areas in which Christianity has given us our values. And in each case, it will summarize the key four, five, six, seven, eight stories that explain how we came to have it so good. A really important resource. Please take them and, um, and, and read them and then learn the stories. Hopeproject.co.nz is at one of our public websites. And if you go here, there's another resource for you. If you scroll down, you've got three options. One of these is Christian Hope, or you could look at just general stuff on hope. If you click Christian Hope, you'll find